We're going to look again at the uh, video, music video uh, by Michael Card that really gives a summary of the book of Job. And so take, take heed to this. It takes us all the way through to the point right where we are this morning. Now come upon me. Why? 
that's powerful powerful summary and uh it's good to uh it, it, it's good to paraphrase the scriptures and do it in creative ways and so i hope you've seen in those images there's a lot of artwork there's a lot of song there's just a lot of creative ways you can look at the story of job well today i want you to turn your bibles to job chapter 15 we're in the second round of debates and we're going to handle this a little differently uh, today, we're going to look at all three of the uh, friends' miserable comfort in round two today, and then next week, we'll look at Job's response. But let me begin with this. A defendant was on trial for murder, and there was a strong evidence indicating guilt, but there was no corpse. And in the closing statement, the defense lawyer, knowing that his client was probably going to be declared guilty, resorted to a trick. Here's what he said. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all. 
the lawyer said as he looked at his watch. Within one minute, the person presumed dead in this case will walk into this courtroom. He looked toward the court, courtroom door. The jurors, somewhat stunned, all looked eagerly. A minute passed. Nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, Actually, I made up the previous statement, but you all looked with anticipation. I, therefore, put to you that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed and insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. The jury was confused. They uh, uh, went into the room to deliberate. A few minutes later, the jury returned and pronounced the verdict of guilty. The lawyer couldn't, couldn't believe it. How? How could you do this? You must have had some doubt. I saw all of you stare at the door. And the jury foreman replied, Oh, we looked, but your client didn't. All right? True guilt. True guilt. Well, let me balance that with this. A trial had been going on for three days when a blonde accused of committing the crimes finally stood up and approached the judge's bench. Your Honor. I would like to change my plea from innocent to guilty of these charges. The judge just couldn't believe it. He was so angry, he banged his fist on the desk and said, If you're guilty, why didn't you say so in the first place and save this court a lot of time and inconvenience, he demanded. And the blonde looked up, wide-eyed, and stated, Well, when the trial started, I thought I was innocent, but that was before I heard all the evidence against me. It's a blonde joke. You, 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 you can understand. False guilt. True guilt. False. See, there you go. There you, oh, Kathy, did you? Uh, okay, okay. True guilt and false guilt. That's what we learned from this lesson. Listen, we can be guilty and not feel like it. Do you agree? And we can feel guilty and not actually be guilty. Do you agree? And that's the reality of those stories. So here's what we need. Here's the main idea of, of this week and next week of our two lessons. It, it, we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning when it comes to declaring others guilty and dealing with our own guilt. We need to discern whether people are truly guilty or whether we're truly guilty. And that's what Job 15 through 21 is all about. If you, as we're going to look at, the second round of debate comes from Job 15 through Job 21. And uh, let's review a little bit. Round one, the, the first round of debates was a rigid confrontation. It was a rigid confrontation of sin, of slight sin, of supposed sin. Here's what they said to Job. You must have sinned. Why would you be suffering so greatly if you had not sinned? So you better repent because you always reap what you sow before you die. In other words, they were confronting them about the need for repentance. You couldn't be suffering this much if you had not sinned. The only problem was Job didn't agree with them. Job didn't cooperate with them. Job refused to repent. Why? Because Job had not sinned. He had not sinned. And so in round two, the difference between what we're looking at this week and what we've been looking at is round two is relentless conviction. It's gone from confrontation to relentless conviction of serious sin. Job, we thought you might have sinned. We thought you must have sinned, but now we know you have sinned. So realize it before it's too late. So let me give you a little uh, insight into what these the three speeches of these guys. 
in 15 through 21, there's no mention of repentance. In the first round, every one of these guys said, you're, you must have sinned, and then each one of them challenged him to repent. Well, now there's no mention of repentance. Why? Why is there no re- mention of repentance? We're not going to see any of that in what these guys say. It's because there's no need to call someone to repentance if they don't think they have yet sinned. You can't call someone to repent if they don't think they have sinned. What do you have to do before you can get someone to repent? You got to get them convinced what? That they actually sinned. So that's now their strategy. That's their strategy. They were convinced that Job must have sinned because of the way he was suffering. So in round one, they tried to confront him with his need for repentance. They tried to convince him to repent, to get off the ash heap and onto easy street. But Job was convinced he was blameless, not sinless, but blameless in his relationship with God. Therefore, he had no need to repent. But the three guys, they're having none of it. And if at first they thought Job must have sinned, now they were sure based on his refusal to agree with them and confess his sin. They thought he was a sinner. Now they know he's a double sinner. Not only is he not confessing his sin, he's denying that he is a sinner. What a hypocrite. Look how you're suffering. You must be sinning. And now that you deny you're sinning, we know you're a double sinner. Because Job was not convinced he had sinned, they had only one choice, convincing that he had actually sinned by bringing him to a place of conviction. So here's what happens. This guy is suffering, and so the three friends come to bring him consolation. They come to bring him comfort. The consolation becomes confrontation. Why? Because when you suffer, you must be sinning, and therefore we must confront your sin. But when he denied he was a sinner, the confrontation became relentless conviction. Because unless this guy will admit he's sinning, he's a sinner, unless he will be convicted, he won't confess. And if he won't confess, he'll never get out of his suffering. Do you see the reasoning? So they're relentless in trying to convict him. Here, here's, let me, let me, I try to explain it. Let me illustrate it. You ever seen that, uh, show, that uh, game Whack-A-Mole at the pizza place? You ever play, how many have ever played Whack-A-Mole? Whack-A-Mole. Yeah, it's a fun game, right? Pops up, whack him, and then he pops up somewhere. This is round two. Job pops his head up and says, I'm blameless. And Eliphaz says, no, you're not. Whack. And then he jumped, he, uh, Job pops his head up over here and says, I'm blameless. And Bildad says, no, you're not. Whack. And then uh, Job pops his head up over there and, and uh, says, I'm blameless. And Zophar says, no, you're not. Whack. That's round two. Conviction. Relentless conviction. Look at Job 15, 1 through 6. Just to get you a little flavor. Here's Eliphaz, the experienced moralist. He, he starts it off. Look at verse, five, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Oh, that's great right there. Middle Eastern. Every one of these begin with, with a Middle Eastern insult. Because if you really want to get to someone's heart, you insult them. Okay, I just said that in sarcasm. That's just how these guys operate. And so it literally says, you fill your belly with the east wind, which was a strong, powerful wind. Now, what happens, uh, folks, when you fill your belly with a lot of air? 
that air has to come out one of two ways, right? It either comes up through belching or it goes out through... Okay, you understand that. And uh, some commentators are they, 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 they're they trying to figure out just exactly. It's as crude. It's as, uh, it's as mean. Basically, you, you, your words are not only a hot air. Well, you know, you've been filling your belly with a lot of a lot of east wind. Look at verse three. Should he argue? Should he argue with useless talk or the words which are not profitable? Indeed, you do away with reverence and hinder meditation before God. Job, if you would just stop talking for a minute and meditate and let God speak to you, he would reveal just how sinful you are. Verse six, your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Were you the first man to be born or were you brought forth before the hills? Do you hear the secret counsel of God and limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that we do not? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, even the words spoken gently with you? Now, that's sarcastic. That's not even true. See, they, they haven't been gentle. They haven't been bringing the comfort of God. But nonetheless, they're heaping guilt upon Job. In fact, in verse 5, it says, Your guilt teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. We're going to discover in uh, the second round of debates two reasons why we need to be discerning when it comes to dealing with guilt. Not only in others, but in ourselves. This week, we're going to look at how not to let not how how not to take people on a guilt trip. Next week, we're going to see how not to take ride on the guilt trip express. So today we're looking at how not to put other people on a guilt trip. Next week, we'll look at how not to take that ride on the guilt trip express. So let's look at it. First, first I want you to see, we need to be discerning when dealing with guilt because there's two kinds of guilt, true guilt and false guilt, true guilt and false guilt. So there's two kinds of guilt. That's why we got to be discerning. Not every time we feel guilty is it from God. So let's talk a little bit about true guilt and false guilt. First of all, true guilt comes from God. True guilt comes from God. Okay? And if you want to look down there, false guilt comes from the devil. It's really that simple. There's true guilt and there's false guilt. And you need to discern between the two. So let's take a look at this a little bit. Notice in your notes, it says true guilt comes from God through a variety of means for the purpose of confession of actual sin. Circle that word actual. That's really important. True guilt is always linked to actual or real sin that you or I have committed. If there's no sin, then there should be no guilt. And if there's guilt when there's no sin, then it's false guilt. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's with the ultimate goal of reconciliation and never bringing it up again for condemnation. So let's break that down a little bit. True guilt comes from God. Not just any God, but our creator and our redeemer, the God who loves us. True guilt comes from God who loves us. True guilt is healthy. True guilt is a blessing. It shows you that you're doing wrong, and it calls you to correct that, to confess that, 
so that you can be forgiven. It comes from our Creator and our Redeemer. And it comes through a variety of means. True guilt comes through God's Word. It comes through God's Spirit. It comes through God's sovereign use of people and circumstances to show us our guilt. Haven't you all been there? I, haven't, haven't you seen in your own life God use circumstances to convict you? I mean, you may just hear a song. You may run into a person, and God uses that chance encounter to actually show you you are guilty of something maybe totally unrelated to that person. It just, he uses a variety of means. He'll even use unbelievers. Have you ever been brought to conviction by an unbeliever? Yeah. Yeah, God uses a variety of means. But his purpose is confession and cleansing. His purpose is repentance and reconciliation. In other words, you might want to jot that God convicts of guilt to remove guilt. That is so important. I, he convicts us of guilt. Is that fun? No. Do we feel bad? Yes. But it's for a per- it's just like a father disciplining his children. There is pain involved. There true guilt, but he shows us our guilt to remove us our guilt, and that's a blessing. It can exist with or without feelings. I think I have this in your notes. Objective guilt. We are guilty whenever we fall short of God's gracious character, glorious character, and his perfect law. Anytime we fall short, we're guilty. But we don't always feel it, right? In fact, before I was saved, before you were saved, we were born guilty. We lived guilty. Some of you lived 20, 30, maybe even 40 years and didn't know that you were guilty. And then the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, someone sharing the gospel, circumstances in your life, God used a variety of means to show you you've been guilty all your life. Now you're just now realizing it. That's objective guilt. Listen, you don't have to feel guilty to be guilty. You just need to fall short of a holy God. Are you with me? But there is subjective guilt. What do I mean by that? We may or may not immediately feel guilty and express emotional sorrow over our sin. It's normal to have feelings of guilt when we do something wrong. That's true guilt. But it's also true that we can be truly guilty and not feel like it. But listen, when we're truly convicted, when we're truly convicted by God, we will not only be guilty, but we will feel guilty. Are you with me? Let me show you this real quick. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I can't uh, go into detail on this, but this is a great, this is a classic passage on true guilt and uh, false guilt, or what is sometimes translated as godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. I need 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. All right, notice what he says. For though, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. They had an incident in their church where a, a son was living with his dad's wife. Incest was going on among professing believers. It was known by the church and it was being accepted by the church. And Paul had to bring conviction. He had to bring true guilt. So let me just say this real quick. As we go through this week and next week, 
I don't, I, want, I don't want you to get the idea that it's wrong to ever make someone feel guilty or to convict someone of sin. That is not always wrong. There's a godly way of doing it, and there's an ungodly way. So the last thing I want you to do is come out of this lesson this week and next and say, well, I'll never say anything to anyone because I don't want to put them on a guilt trip. Well, if you do that, you're already guilty of not being used of God to help people. Okay, so there is a right way to do it. So this is what Paul is saying. He said, look, I'm glad I made you feel guilty in a godly way. Verse uh, 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. In other words, I don't get, I, I, I don't enjoy making you feel bad. But if making you feel bad, done in a godly way, will bring you to repentance, then I'll, 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 I'll be miserable with you for a greater purpose. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. See, listen, we, God shows guilt to remove guilt, not to keep you miserable. Okay. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, I didn't enjoy that, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, and that was my ultimate goal, because that's God's ultimate goal. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, a godly sorrow, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through this. I'd rather have you feel miserable and be convicted temporary so that you don't lose what is eternal. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, look at verse 11, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow, this godly conviction, has produced in you what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Do you see those words? They're full of emotion. True guilt, when felt, will be emotional. We will be heartbroken. Remember when you got saved? There was brokenness over your sin. Remember, now that you're saved and the Holy Spirit brings conviction and it breaks your heart. And so that's what true guilt. Once dealt with, true guilt, God no longer brings it back up. This is beautiful to further condemn us. This is a real evidence of true of those who are bringing true conviction. Because once it comes, once it comes and you repent, then it's over. Are you with me? True guilt, once dealt with as God requires, is buried at the foot of the cross, and no one has the right to dig it back up, including yourself. True guilt, once it's dealt with, is covered by the blood of Christ and thrown in the ocean of God's forgetfulness. And as Corey Timboom says, he puts a sign there that says, No fishing. It's cast as far as the east is from the west, according to Psalm 103. In other words, it's over. God doesn't bring. So, once you deal with true guilt, if you still feel guilty, then you know it's what? You know it's false guilt. Are you with me? Once you've dealt with it, if you or someone else or the devil brings it up to condemn you, you know it's not from God. Because why? I dealt with it as God told me to, 
It's buried at the foot of the cross. It's thrown into the ocean of his, his forgetfulness. There's a no fishing sign. I, I shouldn't be condemning myself, and I shouldn't be allowing others to condemn me about what has been dealt with. So, remember that there is true guilt, and there's a godly way to convict others of sin. But let's look at the false guilt. False guilt comes from who? The devil through a variety of means for the purpose of condemnation, not not confession, and it's condemnation of actual or alleged sin. You see, false guilt can come over true sin, but it's true sin that was already dealt with. That's false guilt. But a lot of times, false guilt is over something that God doesn't say is sin, but you still feel guilty about it. Or others want you to feel guilty about it. And that's what was going on with Job. Job had no actual sin. But who was accusing him? Well, he had, he had four people accusing him. The devil, who is called the adversary, the accuser, that, he loves to do this with you. And then uh, second, third, and fourth, he had three buddies that were helping him out with his false guilt. When, keep, when people keep coming at you with accusations and are never content with your efforts to reconcile, you're dealing with false guilt. And how did this work with the accuser? He accused, in Job chapter 1, he accuses Job falsely of something that he hadn't done. And God says, okay, you can test him. And, he, and the devil took all that he possessed. And Job came through it and said, uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I love him because of who he is, not what he's given to me. He can take it all. Now, here's what the accusers do. Here's what people who are out to condemn you do. Instead of going to God and saying, you know what? I accused him of this, but he's proven that he's not guilty. I'll just stop right there. No, what does the accuser do? He made another accusation. He's like, because his goal is not is not godly it's not to bring reconciliation it's to continually accuse you until you finally admit i'm guilty even though i'm not and so he brings the second accusation and that's what accusers do their purpose is condemnation and further rejection and it's almost always they try to make you feel guilty shameful and wrong for the wrong reasons, okay? And this is where the problems come from. We can be truly blameless of some particular sin, and yet we can feel guilt even though we're innocent. That's false guilt. It can, false, and, and false guilt needs to be dealt with because it can lead to depression. It can lead to spir- uh, spiritual paralysis because you always feel you're being condemned. You always feel you're guilty. And when you feel guilty, you're not free to trust God. You're not free to serve God. You're not free to risk for God because, man, I'm already in trouble and it's just going to, I'm going to mess it up anyway and then I'll be in more trouble. So I'll just sit here and wallow in my guilt. False guilt tends to be very me-centered rather than God-centered. The tendency is to think we'll never be good enough and focus on all our shortcomings. False guilt needs to be dealt with. Now listen, the goal of false guilt is to never 
that it can never be fully dealt with and it's repeatedly brought back up by you or by others and especially by the devil. Remember we said in this study that we haven't heard again from the devil since chapter 2, but I think we're hearing from him all the way through here. We're hearing about him, from him through the three friends as they accuse, accuse, accuse. So the first thing I want you to see is you've got to be discerning because there's two kinds of guilt. There's true guilt and there's false guilt, and you have to discern between the two. Someone once said, I've never traveled much, but all my life I've been on a guilt trip. And that's what false guilt is all about. The devil wants you and I to be on a guilt trip for the rest of our lives. And he'll use other people, even other believers, to put you on that guilt trip. And sad to say, our conscience, we can put ourselves on that guilt trip. Are you with me? So, here's the second thing we need to be discerning about. There's two kinds of people on the guilt trip express. So, this is where we're, we're, we're now moving into false guilt. And I want to call that the guilt trip. You know, put you on a guilt trip. That's false guilt. We'll just call that the guilt trip express. And there's two kinds of people. The first is guilt trip conductors that take others for a ride on the guilt trip. Job's three friends are guilt trip conductors. Hey, let me give you a ticket to ride. Uh, let, me, let, me get, let me show you on to the guilt trip express. Let's, let's go guilt tripping. Uh, and and let, me, let me give you a ride. Guilt trip conductors. That's what we're going to talk about th- for the rest of our time today. Then there's guilt trip riders who let others take them on the guilt trip express. Next week, we'll talk from Job's perspective how he refused to get on the guilt trip express, and we will help you next week, if you're on it, how to get off of it. Are you with me? All right. So let's take a look. And listen, this is relevant to all of us. Parents, parents, no matter what age your children are, you parents are great at buying their tickets, uh, their their uh, kids tickets to ride on the guilt trip express. But don't beat your up, yourself up too bad because kids, no matter the age, are great at saving a seat for you as a parent on the guilt trip express. I'm seeing smiles. You know how this works. Pastors can take. It's one of the 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 dangers inherent in ministry. Pastors can take whole churches on a ride on the guilt trip express. But again, don't think it's only one way. Church members will give gifts to pastors of a, let me give you a gift, a ticket to ride on the guilt trip express because you weren't there when I really needed you. So it goes both ways. This is applicable to all of us. It's at work. It's in the classroom. Let's take a look at it. Let's take, let's look at three stops on the guilt trip express. Each of these guys try to put Job on a guilt trip. Stop number one. Eliphaz is the experienced guilt tripper. He was older. He'd been doing it longer. He knew how to do it. Look at Job 15. And here's where he begins it in verse 14. Look at verse 14. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less... One who is detestable and corrupt. Man who drinks iniquity like water. I will tell you. Listen to me and 
And what I have seen, I will also declare. Remember, he always he talks from experience. What wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers. Now look at verses 34, drop down to 34 and 35. For the company of the godless is barren. Kind of like you, Job. And fire consumes the tents of the corrupt. Kind of like what happened to you, Job. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity and their mind prepares deception. Guilt trip, done. Here's the principle. Here's what he's saying. God always gets, uh, I'm sorry, godless people always get what they deserve, just like you. Godless people always get what they deserve, just like you. Did you notice as you read through Job 15, Eliphaz never directly mentions Job. He doesn't say you. He just says, here's how godless people are. But the picture he paints, it's obvious. Who is he talking about? Yeah, see, that's how guilt trips work. Okay, I, just, I, won't, I won't just come out. Experienced guilt trippers will always focus on how bad you are and how you're getting what you deserve. Their approach is always negative, and they focus solely on what you've done wrong, actual or alleged, real or perceived. Stop number one. Stop number two on the guilt trip express is found in in Job 18. Turn to Job 18. Bildad, the brutal guilt tripper. Okay, some are experienced, some are brutal. Uh, Let's look at uh, chapter 18. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. First, you've got to have the brutal insult. Then Bildad, the Shuite, responded, How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as beasts, as stupid in your eyes? Oh, you who tear yourself in anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place. Basically, what he's saying there is, Job, do we have to like rearrange creation just so that you can prove that you're innocent? Why don't you just acknowledge how the world is ordered? And then comes the brutal guilt trip. Look at verses 5 and 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes out above him. Job was surrounded in emotional, physical, mental darkness. And build that as brutal in pointing that out. If you doubt me, look at verse 11. All around terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. He's talking about the godless. He's talking about the wicked. His strength is famished and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and they march him before the king of terrors. There dwells in his tent nothing of his brimstone is scattered on his habitation. Remember how his kids died? Fire from heaven. His roots are dried below. His branch is caught, cut off above. There's no strength or fruit. You have no past. You have no future. Memory of him perishes from the earth. Verse 18, he is driven from light into darkness, chased into the inhabited, chased from the inhabited world. Where was Job sitting? On the ash heap. Totally separate from the community. And look at 19. 
You can't get any more brutal than this. He has no offspring or posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourns. Then look at verse 21. Surely, 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 such are the dwellings of the wicked. Surely such is the dwellings of the wicked, like I've just described to you. And then look at what he says. And this is the place of him who does not know God. He says, I painted this picture out there. Surely this. And he perhaps he even pointed right at Job, sitting on the at This is the place of him who does not know God. Well, notice again. He never directly addresses Job. He's taking him on a guilt trip. He's saying, I paint this picture, but what I painted is a person who's suffering exactly what you've suffered, and because you're suffering it, you must be one who does not know God. Here's the principle. Godless people always suffer great adversity. Godless people always suffer great adversity just like you. Godless people are crushed by God. Listen, brutal guilt trippers like Bill Dad love to rehash and rehearse all the bad things that have come in your life and then point out that it's all because you've sinned. Listen to me. Listen to, listen to this. Your kids are prodigals because you're sin, because of your sin. Do it right and it, and it never would have happened. Make it right and they'll come home. Your cancer has come because of your sin. Just have faith in God's healing power and it will go into remission. You lost your job because of this sin or that sin. Get right with God and you'll never lose another job again. People are against you because of your own sin. Repent and you'll never have another enemy. Those are all brutal guilt trips like Bill did. Now I do want to say, you've got to remember, sin does have consequences. And every one of those things can happen because of sin. I want you to hear me very clearly. Our sin can drive our kids into rebellion. Our sin can bring the discipline of cancer or health upon our lives. Our sin can cause us to lose a job. The problem is we're not in a position to know exactly what's going on in someone else's life. Are you with me? So that may be happening, but I don't really know. Remember, everything in Job 1 and 2, no one knew it. Job didn't know it. The three didn't know it. And we don't know it when it's happening in our life or someone else's. Well, third stop on the guilt trip express. Zophar, the zealous guilt tripper, uh, moved to chapter 20. Boy, what, don't, don't, aren't, isn't Job blessed to have buddies like this? Three stops on the guilt trip express. Chapter 20. First, you've got to begin with an insult. Then so far, the Namathite answered, Therefore, my disquieting thoughts make me respond. Remember, he's the, the rationalist. He's always thinking, and he's very passionate. He says, My disquieting thoughts make me respond, even because of my inward agitation. I am so passionate about this. I listen to the reproof of which insults me. And the spirit of my understanding makes me answer, do you know this from old, from the establishment of man on earth? He says, I'm passionate. I've reasoned this out. And then he takes him on the guilt trip. Verse 5, the triumphing of the wicked is short, 
and the joy of the godless momentary. Okay, now, I won't read the rest of that. Here's the principle. Godless people enjoy great prosperity for just a short time. Just like you, Joe. Godless people enjoy great prosperity for just a short time. If you'll read through what Zophar says, he basically says this. Oh, yeah, Job, you were the richest man, but it was temporary and you've lost it all. And that's exactly what God does with wicked people. They may prosper for a time, but it will suddenly disappear. Godless people are condemned by God like you are. Now, here's what he's doing. He's pointing out your sin is always due, your suffering, I'm sorry, your suffering is always due to your sin. It's always due to your sin. Step back and think through what these guys are doing. Here's what they're doing. All three of these guys have tried to put Job on a guilt trip by painting what a godless person, and they've purposely painted it to match what he's experiencing. And the point is, Job, can't, I, can't, I can't draw it. I can't make it any clearer. You're going through what you're going through because you've sinned. And we're going to take you for a ride on the guilt trip. So how can we not be like this? Do you want to be like this? We don't want to be this way. So how can we stop being a conductor on the guilt trip express? Well, there's four ways, and they're the four ways we've talked about numerous times. First of all, don't make the wrong assumptions about the suffering and sins of others. Don't make the wrong assumptions. You see, false guilt is always based on wrong assumptions or outright lies or demonic deception. Listen, what you don't know, you don't know. Are you with me? What you don't know, you don't know. We don't know what goes on in the hearts of people. Therefore, we should never judge what their motives are because we don't know the motives of the heart. Now, we can take the Word of God and say, hey, here's what you're doing and what you're doing is wrong. But when we don't know what's going on in here, then we don't, we gotta, we don't make assumptions. Don't make the wrong assumptions. You must have sinned. Look how you're suffering. Really? How do you know that? And yet, how do we think? You think that way, when bad things happen to you, what's the first thought? What did I do wrong? Now, that's a good question to ask and ask God. But if God says nothing, then don't ever quit asking that question. That's false guilt. And if you've asked that question of God, and let's say he said, well, you did this wrong, and you confess it, then don't let anybody else put you on a guilt trip regarding something that you've dealt with. You've sinned because I say so, or because I say God says so. Really? How do you know that? Listen, what's not sin in the Bible is not sin. What matters is what God actually says, not what other people think. What you can't see, you don't know. You don't know what's going on in someone's heart. What you don't know, you don't know. Neither Job or his three friends knew what had taken place in heaven. The hidden things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us. What we know in this book is sin is sin, but I can't judge exactly. I I shouldn't make assumptions. And it's easy to do this. And if you'll begin to be discerning, you will discern that you are judging motives. And you can, with the help of the Holy Spirit, not do that. Number two, 
don't take wrong don't take the wrong approach with the sufferings and sins of others here's a wrong approach if you don't agree with me then you're a sinner wrong approach okay i will punish you until you agree with me about your sin i will shame you i will not talk with you i will uh not I I won't have a relationship with you until you see your sin like I see your sin. Wrong approach. False guilt does uh, does not come from God, so either the devil, others, or our misinformed conscience must try and make us feel guilty. False guilt will always try and force a confession from others. The whole problem that these three were doing is they were trying to force a confession. Now listen, if somebody's not ready to confess, you can't make them. And if you try to make them, you're taking them for a ride on the guilt trip. What did these three guys, what did they need to do? Once, after they confronted Job in round one, and he, he, he said, look, I haven't sinned. You know what the three needed to do? They needed to quit talking, sit with him, and wait for God to bring him to a point of conviction or show that he wasn't that he was blameless. They should have just stopped. But if we have a fix-it mentality, which many of us here do, then we want to take that next step and help God out. I know you need to confess. Let me help you confess. In fact, I will punish you until you do confess. That's the wrong approach. Number three, don't have the wrong attitude toward the suffering and sins of others. False guilt doesn't come from God, so... Uh, we will use the wrong motivation to get people. Here's four motivations. And all all four of these, these guys had. And think about it in your own life. Most guilt trips are motivated by fear. And here's the fear. I think this is the way the world works. And if you don't agree with me, then I'm going to have to change the way I think. And I'm afraid. I don't want to change the way I think. So much of what people want you to feel guilty about is not from the Word of God. It's not from the Spirit of God. It's motivated by their own fear. I'm afraid to do what you're doing, but you're doing it. And if you're doing what I'm afraid of doing, then i got to get you to stop doing it so I, can't be, so I won't be fearful about it anymore. Fear. And then shame. I'm embarrassed by what you've done or how you're suffering. So get this fixed and shape up so I can feel better about myself. We put people on guilt trips out of embarrassment. I'm so tied to you that if you mess up, I need to get you to straighten up so that I don't have to be embarrassed anymore. Guilt trip. Shame. It's not about you you getting right with God. It's about me feeling better so I don't feel bad in front of others. Motivated by anger. I'm already angry at God and you're suffering this way or sinning this way just makes me more angry at God. Stop it right now. These guys were angry. Why were they so angry? Job's suffering. They're sitting there feeling good. Where's the anger coming from? False guilt. And they were motivated. Often we put people on guilt trips because we have not dealt with our guilt. Or we have false guilt. And we don't know how to deal with that. And so the the theory is this. If I'm miserable, so should you. Why are you so happy being so free, exercising your liberty in Christ when I'm so miserable? Join me in my misery. You shouldn't be happy when I'm not happy. 
Are, some of you are shaking. Some of you are relating. Are you relating to this? Number four, and I got to end. Don't use the wrong authority. Don't use the wrong authority. Uh, Eliphaz used experience. Bildad used tradition, and Zophar used uh, zeal. If you can't make someone feel guilty, speak louder. Okay. If you can't make someone get feel guilty, then get more passionate. Listen. False guilt needs to be rooted in, in God, God's Spirit, and God's Son. But false guilt often comes through ignorance, arrogance, deception, and outright lies. Because here's what happens. If you refuse to get on the guilt trip express in time, your conductors will begin to lie about what you've done. Because basically, if you're guiltless, if you're blameless, there's no evidence. There's no re- Why should I get on this? Well, let me come up with some way. All right. So, did you get the lesson today? Be discerning. Don't take others on the guilt trip express. So, here's your next step. Here's your next step. It is not put your guilt trip conductors on a guilt trip. Okay? You may never be able to... Get your convict your guilt trip conductors of their guilt tripping. That's okay. Don't put guilt trippers on a guilt trip. Instead, I want you to do this. Here's your next step. Who have you tried to take a ride on the guilt trip express? Who have you? Who have you been a conductor? Who have you bought a ticket? Who have you tried to press into their hands? Who have you tried to force? to get on the guilt trip express and see things and and confess things the way you want them to. Confess it. That's true guilt. Whether you feel like it or not, that's true guilt. Confess it to God and He will forgive you. And then pray and humbly go to those people and ask their forgiveness for trying to take them on a guilt trip. And then... Come back next week, and as you learn how to stay off the guilt trip express, ask God to rebuild any broken relationships, because this ruins relationships. And at the end of this story, listen, at the end of the story, Job and his three friends are reconciled. And it can happen for you. But what you have to do is take care of yourself, not your spouse not your kids, not your parents, not your boss. Look at yourself. I have to look at myself. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that uh, you have such wisdom from your word. Left alone, we'd be all messed up riding the guilt trip express for the rest of our lives. But Lord, we don't have to be conductors. We don't have to put others on a guilt trip. We are free to let you convict. So I pray that we will take this next step and honestly look at our our marriage, our parenting, our work relationships, our leadership, our ministry, and ask you to forgive us. And then go and ask forgiveness. And then rebuild in a new way of relating. Lord, thank you that you don't put us on guilt trips. You remove guilt by the blood of Jesus. In his name we stand forgiven as we place our faith in you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen.